Welcome to the Medical Independent Innovation in Healthcare podcast series, where we explore the advances that are transforming Irish healthcare and the innovative minds behind them. From cutting edge technologies, to groundbreaking research, to new models of care, Ireland is at the forefront of medical innovation. Our guests are leading figures in the Irish and international healthcare community who are revolutionising the way patients are being treated. So whether you're a healthcare professional, a patient, or simply curious about the latest developments in Irish medicine, join us for an engaging and informative discussion. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Medical Independent Innovation in Healthcare podcast series. I'm your host, Priscilla Lynch, Clinical Editor of the Medical Independent. Joining me in this episode is Professor Mary Horgan, a world-renowned expert in infectious diseases, who is currently Professor of Infectious Diseases at University College Dublin. Professor Horgan recently completed her second term as President of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, the first female in this role since its establishment in 1654, and she is a former Dean of the Medical School in University College Cork. During her career, Professor Horgan has become a national and international leader in medical education and training in infectious diseases and public health, and has spearheaded the development of many medical education initiatives in Ireland, alongside a distinguished research career. Professor Horgan's work to date in this field has been instrumental in reversing the downward trend in the uptake of the HPV vaccine, being heavily involved in the COVID-19 pandemic response, and also in tackling the HIV epidemic in Ireland. Truly a career dedicated to innovation in infectious diseases, medical education and public health. Firstly, Professor Horgan, can you tell me why you decided to get involved in infectious diseases and public health in the first place? Um, Thanks, Priscilla. I suppose it's always about being inspired by people who teach you when you're in medical school. And we had a fantastic uh, uh, professor of microbiology, Professor Irene Hillary, and she was able to impart, I suppose, a love of infection, if you like to call it that way. Um, And I suppose she was the initial inspiration for me, um, showing an interest in infectious diseases. I suppose the importance of how teachers really influence our career choices. And she certainly did that for me when I was an undergraduate in UCD. And you studied and worked abroad in your earlier career when you would have come across HIV in the United States at a particularly crucial time. Yes, um, I at the time in Ireland, there was no training in the specialty of infectious diseases. And to be honest, I didn't even know it existed where you could be a clinician going on the wards and seeing patients with infectious diseases. But I worked with Professor Marish Fitzgerald in St. Vincent's Hospital at the time in the late 1980s. And he suggested that I um, think about a career in infectious diseases. So following on on that, I did a number of interviews over in the States and decided to go to Washington University in St. Louis, one of the big medical university centers there. And I arrived there in July of 1990. And I suppose that was the really uh, peak time of HIV infection and AIDS. Um, people forget how bad it was, but it was really bad. It was the commonest cause of death in men aged between 20 and 44 at the time. Just an astounding statistic that we forget about. So um, settled into life in St. Louis and really had a fantastic uh, training, but not only in clinical training, but also in research and education. 
Um, and I ended up spending seven years there before coming back to Ireland to practice in infectious diseases in the HSE. HIV, as you've mentioned there, really is a devastating disease and it's easy to forget how terrible it was in Ireland and other parts of the world in the 1980s and 1990s. The stigma attached to the disease, the sense of hopelessness. And while we haven't got a cure yet, modern medicines have really revolutionised HIV care to the point where treated patients can live long, healthy lives without passing on the disease. So that has really been a positive journey to watch over your career. And in Ireland, you would have been one of the key specialists making sure that Irish patients had access to these drugs and increasing knowledge about the disease and educating the public as well about addressing the stigma. Yeah, I think I have been privileged in my professional life to see a disease that was so, so bad and so devastating in people to being one where a tablet a day essentially results in a normal lifespan comparable to anybody else. Um, That's uh, truly amazing in this day and age. Um, And that it happened, I suppose, when you reflect on it, it took about you know, 15 years or so to get the big breakthrough of combination antiviral therapy. Um, And really it was a result of, I would think, first and foremost, advocacy um, by patients and patients groups to ensure that research was done into the area. And that really culminated in funding going into the important area of HIV and AIDS. And that resulted in us understanding the virus better and uh, getting treatments that really, really were effective. Initially, in the mid-1990s, there were combination therapies with a lot of side effects at the time. Mind you, they were life-saving. To a a tablet a day, it's really been truly um, astounding. And I think in Ireland, we can be proud of a few things. Firstly, that we have a health system that provides uh, free care for those who are HIV infected. Um, That includes medications. Um, And secondly, that we um, have uh, quite a number of the major pharma companies here, and we actually make components of a lot of the global supply of HIV drugs worldwide. worldwide. So that's truly amazing. So I think I've been privileged to to, to live through all of that from the really bad days to the really good days of where we're at now. That really has been quite a turnaround for HIV. And we've seen a similar case for hepatitis C as well. I mean, there's been an absolute revolution in that we now have an actual cure for this disease. And again, you would have been instrumental in Ireland in making sure that patients had access to those drugs and to the testing process and the particular care that they need. And you've also published research on both HIV and hepatitis in Ireland in some very prestigious journals over the years. Yeah, I suppose, again, another amazing story of hepatitis C, although we knew it was there, it was really only recognized in the 1980s. And a little over two decades later, we have a cure for it. It's truly amazing um, tablet uh, form cure for, for the infection. And I suppose we had um, quite an amount of both co-infection with HIV and hepatitis C, but also hepatitis C alone. And we did have the um, blood transfusion issue in in the uh, late 1970s. And I suppose on foot of that, 
Um, there was a lot of government funding into the area of research in the, air, in the area of hepatitis C, all of which contributed to our knowledge then, but also um, culminating into a really effective treatments. Um, truly amazing that we that that has happened in such a short period of time. And again, this did come back to patient advocacy. So the importance of the patient voice in ensuring that research is done, education is done on preventing it, um, and that, you know, with the ultimate aim of finding cures for disease. Um, and I think these are two really important diseases that have been really uh, effective in um, having our patients advocate for, for ultimately a cure for um, these infections. And that leads us on to the fact that it's not just about the medicines themselves, simply the innovation and creating that cure in the lab. It's also very much about patients being involved, about education, public awareness, prevention, and actually tracking down p- people who have these diseases without realising it. So in your role as an infectious disease consultant, you're out there, you're on radio, um, you talk about many different diseases, and that's obviously a crucial part of the job, as well as being in the hospital and being in the lab and being in the education facility as well, isn't it? Making sure that people can access those services in the community, uh, people practically who might find it difficult to come into hospital settings, um, you know, so that they know there are alternatives out there. And I suppose getting that message across to government and to the public. Absolutely. A lot of these infections are preventable. Um, A lot of them are silent. So any means we have of being able to detect them um, is really welcome. And people need to understand that detecting them is not a bad thing it's a good thing because it prevents the complications of you know liver disease um, or aids and that's why we try to detect them um, early it also allows us to confine the infection to that particular person and treat them rather than being it's it being spread elsewhere i think as we move into you know uh, uh, the uh, the era of more point of care testing bringing tests to where the person is and whether that's in the community practice or in their home is really, really important. We have a very educated population. Once they're told um, or how to um, do something, they, you know, go off and do it. So the more we can um, empower people to test themselves, for, whether it's for HIV, hepatitis C, we've seen it well with, with COVID-19 and um, antigen tests, it allows us to detect infections early and treat people appropriately. And the need to actually have to come into hospital for all of these things, those days are gone. The more we can do um, care in the community, detection in the community, like we do with other screening programs, the better. And I think our my colleagues in public health medicine and public health in general, as well as um, GPs, have been really um, instrumental in you know these advocating for their screening programs. My GP colleagues know their patients best um, and do do opportunistic screening when it comes to, um, you know, HIV or hepatitis C. And there have been, as you know, a number of initiatives where you can order the tests online, do it at home and send them back in. That's the modern world. I mean, we're coming into a global shortage of um, healthcare workforce and we have to um, innovate on how we provide care better to our patients and the public so that it's much more convenient for them. They don't have to come into a hospital. 
Speaking of which, the COVID-19 pandemic really brought that to the fore. You know, testing being brought into people's homes in massive centres, something we'd never seen the likes of globally. And that was, again, something that you were very heavily involved with. You were a member of NEFIT, the National Public Health Emergency Team. You played a key role in advising the government and speaking to the public as well about testing for this disease. Um, Not only that it was a new disease, it was a disease, though, that caused division politically and saw the rise of a lot of misinformation. So, I mean, there was a lot to deal with. And that is another challenge for modern physicians and educators, isn't it? Really having to make sure to be the voice of reason, to make sure that people understand the facts. And education is obviously a key part of that. Absolutely. I think once you can clearly, concisely um, communicate with, with the public on, you know, the pros and cons of anything we do, nothing we do is risk-free. And I think it's communicating risk um, of risk of doing things, of not doing things uh, that people buy in. And I think we were unfor- fortunate in Ireland that the vast majority of people did accept testing, did accept um, vaccination. Um, so communication um, and assuming that our listeners are educated and understand the concepts of, of science and the reason we do things to protect not only themselves, but those um, in, in their families and in their communities is really, really important. So I think effective, clear communication and assuming that we're, we're talking to people who understand what we're saying, um, which the vast majority of people do. Um, so treat them as equals, avoid being paternalistic, I think is really important. And speaking of that, another big challenge in the area is HPV vaccination. Um, there's a lot of focus now in the on the field of prevention. And HPV is a virus that leads to a majority of cervical cancers. Like I remember the creation of the vaccine being such an exciting time that we could actually prevent this disease from happening in the first place. But then that excitement hit a major roadblock. So it is all about that again, isn't it? About communication, not just about the innovation and creating a treatment or a, a vaccine. It's also about how do you communicate to people and address hesitancy concerns and misinformation. And that's something that you, again, have been very involved with, reassuring people about the benefits of vaccination, which will hopefully let us see the elimination, essentially, of cervical cancer in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're so lucky to have a vaccine that essentially prevents cancer. And that's what people need to be reminded of. And it gives younger people in particular uh, the opportunity of avoiding um, cancers and I think often it's you know people talk about vaccine hesitancy but it's really sometimes it's just you know they need clarity around the vaccine ensuring that it's safe that it's effective and certainly when it comes to HPV vaccine we we know that it's safe we know it's really effective at preventing preventing cancer and the aspiration is that we see an eradication of of a cancer that predominantly affects females but of course affects males too Um, so i think we have a onus as healthcare professionals as parents to ensure that we protect our children in whatever way we can Um, and all of the data um, in, in that's that's around shows that it will be effectively eradicated with high vaccine uptakes. And so while there has been some really amazing developments in infectious diseases in recent years, as we've just discussed, 
There's also been some really big challenges because as we become more global, so do diseases. And we have the emergence of diseases that we wouldn't normally see in this side of the world and that can suddenly become a threat. So COVID-19 aside, the MPOX outbreaks in the last couple of years have really shown that, um, that these diseases can come and spread across Europe very quickly. And it's not something that we would have been used to dealing with before and that we have to deal with rapidly. So we really have to be on the ball. And that is, again, something that you're heavily involved with. Um, Absolutely. I think what's really key is surveillance, knowing what's happening, knowing what's happening in our country, but also having really strong network with our colleagues in Europe through the ECDC, our colleagues in the States and beyond, um, because infections can happen really quickly. Most of the newer infections we see are infections that are transmitted from animals into humans. And I do think there is a connection there between the whole One Health, climate change and so on. So looking at emerging infections is not something we do in isolation, but really look across you know, human health, animal health, environmental health, uh, plant health, because they are all linked. So uh, that strong surveillance that's done by the HPSC um, and our colleagues in public health is absolutely essential. But it's never just looking at what we do in our country. It's having strong links with the UK because we saw during the pandemic things that happened in the UK happened here a few days later. Um, And also uh, links beyond, not only in prevention, but also in um, linking in with research and education really quickly if something new happens. But I do think it's about preparedness. I think it's about learning the lessons uh, that we learned during the pandemic, what worked well, what didn't work as well, and spending our time and resource looking forward and preventing looking forward than having a huge look back, which takes a lot of time, effort, and often distraction from planning ahead. And speaking of which, the government recently announced your appointment to lead the design of a new emerging health threats agency. So specifically a public health agency dedicated to responding to infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness and other emerging threats to public health. So can you tell me a bit more about that project? It sounds really exciting and obviously something that's really necessary given the recent experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so so Minister Donnelly um, really wanted to leverage on what we learned during the pandemic and broaden it to other um, emerging health threats because it's not always infections, it can be climate, it can be biological or chemical threats and putting us in the best position possible to first of all detect them, um, well prevent preferably um, detect them and then respond to what's happening, not not only at a health level, but at a community level. And it's looking at models uh, that um, are in place in other jurisdictions like Denmark, Australia, um, the Netherlands, and seeing what is adaptable to our um, situation. We do have a strong public health infrastructure now. There was a lot of investment by um, government in that infrastructure and there are strong leaders in public health. And I think it's it's linking um, the public health, the operations of what we have, what we do uh, when something goes wrong, but really importantly, how we, um, you know, what triggers are there that we can uh, do 
also highlighting the area of One Health, as I mentioned already, and climate change, because they're all part of the emerging health threats we have uh, as a society. That's very interesting and shows that you certainly aren't able to sit still because there are many challenges left right and centre. And as soon as we get to grip on one disease, something else will crop up. But that's the point, isn't it? Being aware and looking to see what is happening on the horizon. Like I would have known clinicians who would have spoken to me 15, 20 years ago about the potential impact of the environment on our health. And that wasn't something that was taken very seriously back then. But now it is. And as you just said there, with infectious diseases, because our climate is changing, we're being exposed to diseases or issues that we wouldn't normally have been aware of or would have had to worry about. So in your field in medical education, that's something that you're having to be aware of in the curriculums, having to change the focus of what you're teaching our doctors today. Absolutely. I think we we live more globally and I think we need to have a more global approach to medical education. Um, not only the health issues that happen, but the cultural differences on um, how people approach their health. Uh, I think that's an essential part of the curriculum. Um, And when things happen really quickly, as we saw with COVID in the Royal College of Physicians, when I was president, they were able to adapt really quickly, get information, not only in Ireland, but all our contacts overseas to um, ensure that we were able to rapidly disseminate state-of-the-art management of a new infection to those that are practicing, whether it's in community practice or hospital practice, not only doctors, uh, but other healthcare professionals. And speaking of which, this is very much part of your role in innovation and medical education in Ireland. So during the pandemic, I know you were heavily involved in making sure that healthcare uh, access and education got online as quickly as possible so that doctors across Ireland were able to access up to date webinars um, from the RCPI, from the various experts uh, that they needed to hear from. So you were able to link in from other countries uh, like Italy and China, see how they were getting on. How did they deal with things? How do health services go online? How can patients stay safe? I mean, that was a very important thing and things were changing rapidly and it was obviously something that you had to jump in and deal with and uh, that's obviously something that we need to be better prepared for. Yeah, you know, I think we're fortunate that we're Irish, we're really good at networking um, and I'm very involved in our European Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. I trained in the States, so you, you develop a big network and it works both ways. I speak at their uh, meetings um, or help with the society and vice versa. So it really is a global community. Um, But I can't um, stress, emphasize enough the importance of that network because people are very willing to, um, you know, educate or train um, colleagues, but also link in when it comes to research networks for clinical trials, biobanking, all of those are really um, essential. And I think as a country did um, play a significant role in contribution of research into um, the COVID-19 understanding. But it is about reaching out to colleagues, friends um, who are more than willing to help uh, the, you know, what, what essentially was a global effort. So innovation doesn't happen in isolation, essentially. We need to look to others. We need to look at other countries. What are they doing? We need to collaborate and to discuss. And I think that's a really important message, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think we need to collaborate, not only in health. I think I get a lot of my good ideas from friends and colleagues that that work outside medicine and health. 
engineers, computer people, business people who look at the health um, issues from a totally different um, perspective. So I think the more we can maybe step out of our comfort zone a little bit um, and interact with people outside pure medicine really helps to innovate a lot. And as you said, you're involved at government level as well, obviously advising. And again, that's something that maybe some people can be a bit reluctant to step up to, to be out there in the public sphere, as well as talking to patients, to talking to the media. So, but that is all a very important part of the job, really, isn't it? Knowledge is power after all. Oh, I I think it's essential. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have had a really good primary, secondary, third level education training in Ireland, training abroad. And I do think part of my job is giving back, um, being able to, uh, you know, share my expertise with others, but also communicating that uh, with the broader public um, or being involved in various uh, community efforts like the Arts Council or the um, GA or, or World Rugby. Um, I think it gives me an opportunity because I, I see how other organizations work. So it is um, it's it is very nice. Yeah. Talking to the media, you know, w- once you're clear on what you're saying, and I know that I'm an expert in the particular area I'm in, I don't stray beyond a lot of the areas because that's not my area of expertise. I think that's really important to share confidently Um, as confident as you can be in particular issues uh, with the wider public in a reassuring, um, confident and concise way. And finally, is there anything specific that you'd like to see happening in Ireland to improve how we deal with infectious diseases or public health challenges like those that we've seen in recent years? I think um, what would I do? I mean, it really is about communication. It's about communication with colleagues, but with the broader public, particularly things that we can do to prevent people from getting sick and prevent people from coming into hospital because the hospital should be the last place any of us ever want to end up being. Obviously, some people can't avoid it, but there are a lot of uh, prevention messages um, that are highly effective. And I think an emphasis on that to avoid um, getting things so you don't have to come to see an infectious disease doctor or your your general practitioner, um, I think is really important. So and assuming that our public, I, I think we're a highly educated population and we understand things and treating people uh, equally so that they understand um, what, what can often be complex issues in medicine, but can be um, uh, communicated in a very straightforward um, way so that people um, can stay well as long as they can. And that's all we have time for in this episode. Thank you so much, Professor Mary Horgan, for joining me to chat about innovation in medical education and infectious diseases and about how important communication and collaboration is in public health. So thank you and tune in for further episodes in the Innovation in Healthcare podcast series. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe to The Medical Independent for the latest healthcare news and debate. Sign up at www.mindo.ie to stay up to date on all the latest medical news. Join the discussion on Twitter at med underscore Indo news. Introducing the new Medical Independent app. 
Why not join over 14,000 healthcare professionals and stay up to date on the latest healthcare news in Ireland? Read in-depth reports on the issues impacting the health service and medical professionals. Trusted insights, breaking news alerts, in-depth analysis and more. Download the Medical Independent app on the Apple Store or the Google Play Store by searching the word Mindo. The Medical Independent app. Your news, your way.